Thanks for uh, joining today. For those of you that uh, have clicked on this because of the title that was offered, if you happen to have any of the issues that we are going to be covering, please make sure that you contact your primary care provider for discussions about uh, possible medical treatments that might be available to you. Please make sure that you are clicking that like and subscribe button, helping us out with the, the metrics within the algorithms. And with all of that said, let's go ahead and skip back into the discussion uh, pertaining to the ideas presented within the Journal of American Medical Association's uh, one-page patient uh, advisory, What is Prediabetes? We're going to go ahead and uh, move on from the discussion that we had in part one, where we talked about what is prediabetes, looking at and discussing the treatment options that were presented and the fallacies and or oversimplifications that were presented within the guides within the advisory from the Journal of American Medical Association. We're going to be heavily reliant upon publications that I have produced, as well as uh, some other colleagues of mine have produced, looking at what type of treatments are actually best. A larger discussion that was previously recorded related to can we actually prevent type 2 diabetes, and I recommend looking at that as well. So treatments for prediabetes. Let's talk about that. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. So the first thing we have to address here is kind of the elephant in the room based off of conspiracy issues and the fact that a lot of paraprofessionals, a lot of people that have creator platforms a lot of people that have the ability to voice an opinion will indicate that a diagnosis of prediabetes is simply a means by which pharmaceutical companies can generate large amounts of revenue by having a pharmacological, a drug that can be used for treatment for long periods of time. While there are drugs used in the treatment for uh, type 2 diabetes, for metabolic issues, the indication for prediabetes and the treatment options that are set out for a prediabetic person is a non-pharmacological avenue of treatment. This non-pharmacological avenue of treatment, this non-drug treatment, is what we usually reference as lifestyle interventions. So let's go ahead and let's look at the four points that were covered as lifestyle interventions within the article. And then let's talk about the pros and cons to each one of them and the issues that arise within it. And so what is being presented within the article is a recommendation for lifestyle changes to increase physical activity each day, to eat a healthier diet, to eat quote-unquote healthier foods, to work on monitoring portion sizes, and to develop support groups to overcome obstacles. Those are their four points. And the four points are all related to a misapplication to the science that indicates that you have to lose between 5 and 10% of your body weight in order to reduce the risk for developing type 2 diabetes. But the problem is, is that if we actually look into the science the science doesn't necessarily agree with that later point about 
the reduction of body mass. A lot of changes that we see within the physiology of the person is going to happen independent of body mass changes because it has to deal with hormonal uh, adaptations, hormonal responses, responses within our endocrine, responses within our hormones to the change in physical activity based off of what's referred to as the said principle, specific adaptations to impose demands. It's a principle that uh, I have discussed previously in the periodization discussions, as well as in the passage in the substack on how to make sure we can have continuous adaptations in our exercise program. But it's an avenue that was not readily explored within the realm of weight management, within the realm of pre-diabetic treatments. And part of that has to deal with the fact that there is a opinion-based market a almost a dogmatic or a cult-like market in terms of exercise and exercise recommendations. And we'll get to the diet and diet recommendations as we as we work through as well. And if you go ahead and do a quick internet search, and I'll pause here for a second and let you go ahead and do an internet search. And let's face it, what you get from the internet, if you look at what's there, you're bombarded. You're bombarded with information about what is best, what is most effective, whether it's about the diet, the exercise, or even supplements necessary to get rid of, and I'll use the word stubborn body fat. Or you're bombarded with information about diets and supplements that are necessary in order to improve overall health. And this is where we get a lot of the uh, snake oils being sent to individuals and pitched by individuals who have limited scientific understanding, scientific background as to why a supplement may or may not work. And one of the things that came out of some conversations I had with a student, she's uh, five years ago now, and led to a paper pertaining to the quote-unquote fat loss supplements, is that all of the fat loss supplements, if you look at what's being published in the in the literature say that they're effective say that they they do stuff but the problem is that if we actually compare what is being presented within all of the fat loss supplements and the uh, gut health supplements and the lower your blood glucose with these supplements if we look at at least with the study that that we did if we look at the fat loss supplements themselves the thermogenic agents is sometimes how it's pitched all of those supplements are actually less effective than simply doing diet and exercise in terms of modification of body mass and making sure that we get the correct changes in body mass. Now, you cannot spot change. You can't change specific areas of your body independent of having surgical procedures taking place, but you can set up diet and exercise in such a way that you get the appropriate body mass changes that you want. And it goes into the hormonal changes that we see coming away from exercise that we don't necessarily see coming away from dietary changes. And so when we get these general recommendations of three times per week, 30 minutes, well, what's that actually mean? What's that actually going to do for the person? And so what we have to do is we have to say, okay, what is the physiology that I'm trying to modify? And it goes back to those upper regulatory elements. The upper regulatory elements that are leading me to my anabolic dysregulation, I have to somehow flip. And the way in which I flip that 
is primarily by changing my psychological drive towards physical activity and exercise. And this goes into something that uh, myself and one of my uh, writing partners put together that looks at the idea of coercion versus self-selection in the treatment options that we have and how when you choose to do things you want to do, you're more apt to do them. And so when we get these general recommendations of 30 minutes, three times per week, we're left to our own devices. But the problem is is that we're susceptible to coercion if we're not somebody that has readily selected exercise, if we're someone that has an aversion to exercise because of psychological trauma or an adverse event that took place earlier in our life. Most individuals that have or are on the pathway towards metabolic issues, most individuals that have a a higher amount of fatness within the fatness and fitness continuum tend to have some subconscious or unconscious aversion to distinct modes of exercise. And part of it is genetic, part of it is psychological, and they get pushed towards, due to social stigma, a form of exercise that they don't want to do. For most individuals who are on the higher fat side versus the higher fit side within the fitness and fatness continuum and have an aversion to exercise, they tend to have been advised to do endurance-style exercise that they don't want to do, which means that the feeling that they have is coercion to do the exercise. And because they have this feeling of coercion to do the exercise, they're less apt, they're less likely to do the exercise independent of the coercion event independent of having someone there watching them to do the exercise, forcing them to do the exercise. At the same time, if we actually look at those upper regulatory elements, the the impact of the hormones on the systemic responses by action at the organs, the tissues, and the cells based off of changes in hormone responses and changing in cellular metabolism. One of the more interesting things that we've seen that, that I've seen in the research, in my research as well as research that colleagues of mine have produced, is that it really doesn't matter what type of exercise we do as long as we're doing exercise, but the most efficient form of exercise is actually resistance training, weight training. And that's because we have a shift in our hormones and our hormone responsiveness coming away from the skeletal muscle coming away from the skeleton, coming away from uh, a lot of the tissues of the body that changes two key hormones coming out of the fat cells that tend to cause a lot of the health issues that we're looking at. But at the same time, what's happening is that distinct hormone signals coming away from the muscles in particular, hormones that we reference as being myokines. So myo is muscle and kine is simply the indication of the hormones. This is hormones coming from muscles. What it does is it changes the way in which we are metabolizing our fuels, carbohydrates, lipids, and proteins, as well as changing the way in which we have our anabolic responses, our building responses within the tissues, as well as our breakdown of lipids within the tissues. And what this does is it changes the the fat tissue nature of the body. And what it does is it leads to what we physiologically refer to as a Beijing effect of our fat tissues. And by beijing the fat tissues, what it does is it makes the fat tissues more beneficially metabolically active. By becoming more beneficially metabolically active, it reduces levels of inflammation. 
the myokines themselves will cause changes in growth signals that lead to new blood vessels being built that lead to reduction in the uh, atherosclerosis, the stiffening of the arteries or the hardening of the arteries by changing the way in which the plaques in the blood vessels are able to adhere to each other. It improves the arterial compliance, the ability for the blood vessels to expand and return back to normal size. This reduces blood pressure. And by reducing blood pressure, it allows for better cardiac functions. It allows for better heart functions. Those combine themselves to reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease that is seen with individuals who are on the higher end of the fat cycle versus the higher end of the fitness side of the continuum of fitness and fatness. And all of those things occur independent of changing body mass. And this is where we get within how we actually do some metric, some of the measurements, some of the metrics of what's going on. We end up having problems arising. And part of the problems that come about deals with the psychological side of the treatment and the need to have long-term use of these treatments. Once again, it's not about long-term use of the drugs, even though there are drugs that can be prescribed. In fact, one of the trendy quotes around that, drugs right now in weight management happens to be a drug that is used in diabetic uh, treatments. And those are the, the GLP-1 agonists, the, GLP, the GLP-1 mimics. Uh, Ozempic is the, the market name given to it. And we've noticed that because of the hormone impact that GLP-1 has on a whole bunch of other regulatory things, one of the things it does is it reduces want to eat. And it reduces want to eat by slowing the rate by which we get hunger signals. It also causes a prolonged satiation signal. And so the difference between a hunger signal and a satiation signal. So a hunger signal is I need to eat, I want to eat. Whereas a satiation signal is I've eaten, I'm digesting, I'm okay. And so when I'm eating, I'm going to reach a point of satiety, fullness. When I get signals coming away from my intestines that say I am maximally active, along with signals within the bloodstream, that stuff that we've eaten have been digested and absorbed. And what the GLP-1 hormone agonists do is that it prolongs that satiation period. And it does that through a whole bunch of different mechanisms. But what it does is by prolonging the satiation period, it reduces my want to eat. And that reduced want to eat is what leads to the weight reduction and does that by changing my nutrient balance. Some people mistakenly refer to that as the caloric balance, something we talked about previously. And so when we start looking at treatment options, let's get a little bit more into the ideas that were presented. And one of the things that gets presented within there is the idea about exercise. And so when we start looking at exercise, it's not necessarily about exercise itself, but it's about the stress and the strain that exercise places on the body that requires the body to have to adapt to the exercise stimulus that's being uh, applied. And the way in which the body responds to this exercise response is through a set of hormonal signals to exercise that leads to specific adaptations based off of what the exercise is doing to the body. And one of the things we want the exercise to be able to do is we want the exercise to maintain fat-free mass, muscle, bone, organ, 
while reducing fat mass, visceral fat or subcutaneous fat, and fat that remains having to switch one of this metabolism that takes it from being a white adipose tissue to a beige adipose tissue. And this changing takes place all through hormonal responses. Even though we talk about it in terms of weight reduction, the idea here is to employ exercise in such a way that we're going to get the appropriate hormonal responses that will initiate metabolic changes. And the initiated metabolic changes is what's going to lead to, in the long term, normalization of all of the measures that the physician and the healthcare provider is looking at as it relates to diabetic indices. And we talk about diabetic indices, we're basically measuring those three things that we talked about in part one. Resting amounts of glucose, fasting levels of glucose, fasting levels of insulin, and my A1C level. And when I am appropriately utilizing exercise, and by appropriately utilizing exercise, that means that I'm utilizing resistance training in a range that would normally cause muscle growth, what we refer to as the hypertrophy zone, and utilizing endurance exercise that will supplement that hypertrophication signaling that I'm getting from my resistance training. What that does peripherally is it changes, what that does within the tissue of the body is it changes the metabolic flexibility, the ability to use multiple forms of fuel. It reduces overall levels of inflammation. And by reducing overall levels of inflammation, it helps to normalize the signals at the tissues that are sensitive to insulin to be responsive to insulin. And so when we start looking at the recommendations, we have that exercise mechanism. But then we also have these recommendations, and, the, and once again, what's being presented within the, the, the Journal of American Medical Association's article is excessively vague and is prone to fallacies based off of what the scientific literature is indicating. And these recommendations about uh, dietary modifications is to eat healthier foods. But there's no indication as to what healthier means, except for eat more vegetables, eat more fruits, eat more whole grains. And this is where people will start discussing about the fact that there are good foods and bad foods. You can put quotes around good and bad. There's no such thing as a good food. There's no such thing as a bad food. There's simply just food. There are good choices and bad choices that we make. And the good choices and bad choices that we make is based off of my nutrient needs, based off of my nutrient balance that is dependent upon my metabolic activity taking place. If we look at the literature that's out there for people who have diabetic conditions, the indication is to have a diet that follows a modified low-carbohydrate or a lower-carbohydrate diet. Sometimes people will reference this as being a ketotic diet. The most common of the ketotic diets that's out there in terms of mass awareness is the Atkins diet. But then there's also other diets that get thrown in there. And this is where we have to be careful because there's a whole bunch of issues that come about when we start looking at diets because we will start to succumb to a lot of the fad diets that are out there and a lot of the fad dietary supplements that are out there that are marketed as a means to somehow reverse issues of diabetes, help with weight loss, help with cardiovascular health. But there's issues that come about when we start looking at the science that's there. And so when we start looking at the science that's there, what does it mean to eat healthier? This is where we have to go back and look at, okay, what is my nutrient balance? And if we start looking at nutrient balance, we start looking, okay, how much protein do I need in a day? How much fat do I need in a day? How much carbohydrate do I need in a day? What are my micronutrient requirements? What are my ion requirements? What are my vitamin requirements? 
because all of those things come into play when we start looking at eating quote unquote healthier. And this is where we start looking at, okay, I'm going to eat healthier. And one of the easy switches that we make in terms of eating healthier is reduction in total sugar intake. That seems to be the the big kind of market ploy that we see within most dietary recommendations currently, 2023, nearing the end of the year of 2023 right now, in terms of diet, where everybody is somehow now overly cognizant of how much sugar is in the foods I'm eating. And so let's go ahead and let's take a look at what's that mean in terms of sugars in the diet. Start looking at and talking about sugars. One of the things that most people will automatically indicate is that all sugars are bad, but that's not the case. What we have to look at is we have to look at not necessarily sugar or added sugars as what is usually referenced on most of the food labels that we see. What we have to do is we have to look at, okay, what am I going to be using those sugars for? What are the tissues of the body that need the sugars? And how much should I be consuming within the day? And just for me to function in a uh, relaxed, almost comatose state, I need to have 120 to 140 grams of sugar in a day. And that's simply so that my neurons are able to function. If I'm trying to learn things, if I'm trying to uh, be a student, if I'm trying to do things beyond just lay around not doing anything, that 120 to 140 grams actually needs to increase. And if I don't eat that 120 to 140 grams of sugar in the day, the body's going to be producing the sugars that I need, in particular the glucose from glucose metabolites that my cells are producing or that are found within other molecules of the body. And so if I am trying to reduce sugars in my diet, one of the things that comes about is an increase in metabolism within the liver and to a lesser extent within the kidney that is meant to ensure I have the appropriate amount of glucose for the body. And so when we start looking at food labels, this is one of the things that we have to start looking at that's not recommended within the recommendations. We have to start looking at, okay, what is the amount of sugar that I'm getting from the foods I'm eating? And is it meeting my minimum requirements? Because that's the, that's the whole idea here is to, to, ha- to meet the minimum requirement. And part of that eating healthier and looking at my food portion size is about looking at my nutrient balance. And my nutrient balance is going to be based off of what am I taking in and what am I using under normal metabolic conditions. It's not about calories, even though that's how a lot of labels are presented and how the discussion has been for far too long. When we start looking at diet, it's about nutrients and nutrition. And so when we start looking at this nutrient and nutrition issue, One of the things that we always talk about is, oh, good carb, bad carb. Well, carbs are carbs. Well, simple carbohydrate versus complex carbohydrate. The difference between simple and complex glucose and fructose within the the sugars, within the carbohydrates of the diets, is more of an indication of digestion and metabolism than health. If we look at sugars in terms of health issues and health aspects in terms of eating quote-unquote healthier, it's really about the amount of fructose within the sugars that I'm eating more than eating sugar itself. And that's because fructose, independent of all other signals, tends to have an impact on fat cells and fat metabolism from those cells than any of the other nutrients that we have within the body. Now, if we start looking at it in terms of the pre-diabetic condition and the recommendations going to come out, 
it's not going to be about fructose. It's going to be about sugars that are going to cause a, quote, insulin spike, end quote. And this is where we get the low glycemic foods. And this is part of the eating healthier and all of the different types of diets that have to be out there. And there's a, a both a YouTube video as well as a podcast on Is There a Best Diet Available, as well as a Substack uh, passage. And when we start looking at the idea of that sugar causing an insulin spike, it's not really about the insulin spike. And that's simply because insulin is only going to be uh, spiked when we consume any sugar, regardless of whether it's glucose or a fructose-based sugar, that is greater than 1.2 grams per kilogram of body mass, about a half a gram per, per pound of body mass per hour within a meal. That's what's going to cause a drastic insulin spike. Insulin is going to be released regardless of whether we're eating sugars or not with a meal. It's one of the hormones that gets released along with a whole host of other hormones that are involved with the hunger and satiation responses that's going to regulate am I hungry or am I full. And so to look at food and look at healthier foods versus unhealthier foods based off of insulin spiking is ignoring what the actual metabolism of the, of the food and of the food in terms of nutrient balance happens to be. And so if we start looking at sugars and sugars in general, in terms of carbohydrate load and carbohydrate nutrient balance, general recommendations from multiple nutrition societies indicates for healthy non-athletic individuals to be consumed between 2.5 and 3.5 grams per kilogram of body mass. You can divide that by about half or pounds. Whereas if I become more athletic, more driven towards needing carbohydrates in my exercise, I need to consume upwards of 5 to 10 grams per kilogram of body mass. Once again, divide that by about 2 or per pound. For my lipids or my fats, I need to consume between 2 and 3 grams of the omega-3s and about 17 grams of the omega-6s per day. And then I need to consume somewhere around 1 gram per kilogram of body mass per day of my lipids. And I need to consume around 0.8 to about 2 grams per kilogram of body mass for protein. Now that protein number and those carbohydrate numbers and those lipid numbers get changed based off of how I'm going to shift my nutrient balance within modifications of diet. And one of the things that came out of some of the meta-analytical studies that I published is that when I start to change my diet and I start to reduce carbohydrates, I want to actually increase my protein intake as well as increase my lipid intake. But my protein intake, I want to get in the neighborhood of about 1.8 to about 2.2 grams per kilogram of body mass to be most beneficial for changing the body mass correctly. That means losing body fat and maintaining fat-free mass in conjunction with my exercise stimulus. And here's the thing that's not mentioned within the article and is not mentioned a lot of times when we start discussing these issues, is that diet by itself is very inefficient in changing any of the modifiable factors within those upper regulatory elements that's going to reduce the anabolic dysregulation and keep me from going towards disease state. And so if I'm going to make changes to my diet, I also have to make changes to my exercise regimen. And ch making changes to my diet and making changes to my exercise regimen is necessary in conjunction with each other. You get not an additional benefit by combining dietary changes with exercise, but you do get a benefit of 
diet and exercise relative to diet alone. And so if I'm just exercising, I'm going to see benefit. However, if I'm just dieting, I'm not going to see a lot of benefit. And this is where people will make statements and claims that, oh, I've changed my diet, but I'm not seeing any of these differences. I have severely reduced my intake. I have severely cut my carbohydrates, but I'm still having these issues. And that's because the other avenue of aspect within the treatment is the more important avenue, and that's the exercise avenue, the physical activity avenue. And the nutrient avenue provides me with the nutrient balance where if I am not providing my body with the nutrients from my diet, I'm going to make it up through developing those nutrients within the body itself. But that's not going to cause drastic metabolic changes. That's not going to cause drastic weight changes. That is what the physicians are looking for in terms of correcting issues related to prediabetes. However, if I have any small modification in my physical activity, I'm going to start to induce start to cause hormonal changes that's going to swing that anabolic dysregulation towards a regulation side that's going to take me from the path towards disease and move me on the path towards non-disease. What to remember is that this is a continuum here, and so what we're simply trying to do is we're trying to oscillate ourselves along that continuum away from a diseased state towards a non-diseased state within the health status continuum. Along with meeting my nutrient requirements, there is some evidence to support changing when I eat and how much I eat as it relates to portion size and meal timing within that avenue of research. Two things have been shown over and over and over to hold true, and they're actually on opposite ends of the extremes. Based on nutrient balance, eating multiple small meals throughout the day is more beneficial than eating two to three meals within the day for modifications in body mass. If those multiple small meals throughout the day also involve a reduction in total carbohydrate load closer to the lower end of the minimum necessary, we end up having even greater benefit in both body mass as well as in health status. Now, at the same time, evidence has shown over and over and over again to be true that eating in a time-restricted fashion or following intermittent fasting also show the same exact beneficial responses that we see with eating multiple small meals throughout the day. And so when we start looking at, okay, portion size and meal timing, it's not really about following a single pattern. It's about following the pattern that best fits for your own daily lifestyle as long as nutrient balance is being met. Now, within this intermittent fasting versus uh, time-restricted eating, the ideas get mixed. And so intermittent fasting is where for one to two days out of the week, I am restricting my total intake to minimal amounts below the minimum requirements. That is followed by days in which I am eating normally and meeting my minimum requirements. That is different than the time-restricted eating. Time-restricted eating gets mislabeled as intermittent fasting in the publications that get put out on YouTube and on and in books and sometimes in magazine articles. Time-restricted eating is where I will only consume food in small portions throughout the day where the rest of the day I will not eat. The most common of the time-restricted eating or the time-restricted feeding is the three square meals a day where I will eat from 6 to 6.20 in the morning, I will eat from 12 to 12.20 in the midday, and I'll eat again from 6 to 6.20 at night. 
the rest of the day I'm not eating. That is actually time-restricted feeding. But that time-restricted feeding has been kind of modified into the three most common styles of time-restricted eating. And the three most common styles of time-restricted eating is the 420, and that is where for four four hours out of the day, I will eat as much as I want to eat, but then I will fast, I will not eat for the remaining 20 hours of the day. There's also the 816, follows the same pattern. For eight hours out of the day, I will eat, but for 16 hours, I will fast. And then there's the 1212, and that's for 12 hours out of the day, I will eat, and 12 hours of the day, I will fast, not eat. And so when we start looking at this portion size, it's all about nutrient balance in terms of grams of nutrients per pound or kilogram of body mass. And for timing, once again, it really doesn't matter as long as it's going to fit within what our lifestyle is going to allow us to have. As long as we are within our minimums and not exceeding or overly exceeding the maximum based on my nutrient requirements, based on my metabolic needs. And so when we start saying, oh, healthier diet, what we're really discussing is we're discussing what is the best diet for my metabolism based off of what my metabolic needs are, based off the stresses that I have within my normal everyday living, plus what I'm going to be doing with exercise. But here's the thing within those those ideas of diet and exercise. It's not about calories. Caloric balance and the idea of caloric balance is a misconception. And the problem with calorie and caloric balance is that it leads to issues surrounding eating disorders and eating disorder-like behaviors, in particular exercise bulimic behaviors, where I don't quite understand how much energy, because that's what the calorie is measuring is. It's measuring energy in the form of heat that I'm going to expend doing an activity relative to the amount of heat, the amount of energy in the foods that are being consumed. Most of the calories that we expend in a day in terms of energy expenditure is through everyday activities that we do, not exercise. And so to equate what I'm eating with what I need to do in exercise generates a misconception within our brain that can lead to psychological issues, which leads to the latter point that they made within the article about the need to have a support group. And that is very true. You do need to have a support group if you're looking at trying to avert to try to stop going from a precondition to a condition. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to establish a change in lifestyle. In order to establish a change in lifestyle, you have to have a support network. Once again, it goes into all those cogwheels. And one of those cogwheels is the societal social cogwheel, the familial cogwheel, the environmental cogwheel. All of those cogwheels are reliant upon social support. And the social support is necessary either to act as an encourager or act as a discourager. And what we want to do is we want to establish a support network that provides positive reinforcement for our behaviors. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to change behaviors along the way. As we wrote in the coercion versus self-selection paper, and as I pointed out in the paper that looked at how we can keep people from yo-yo dieting and yo-yo exercising, what you have to do is you have to have a self-selection towards wanting to do the activity. But at the same time, you have to have the support network there that provides the positive encouragement that is necessary for you to keep going in the activity that you're choosing to do. If you don't have that support network, the likelihood of continuing along drops. And that's because you don't get any positive reward, any positive reinforcer outside of the internalized positive reinforcement. This is how we deal with any type of addictive 
treatments. We've seen it work with multiple types of behavior treatments, whether it's with gambling or consuming alcohol or smoking. While all of those things, just like issues related to overfatness, have a genetic component to it, have a genetic component to it that has changes in both hormonal responses as well as within brain responses to the stimulus. What we have noticed and what we have found is that with a supportive network, the likelihood of continuing increases. The likelihood of selecting things that you want to do increases. And this is the thing with any type of lifestyle choice. If I make a choice within a continuum of choices that have other choices associated with it, if I make a choice to, to change one of those lifestyle factors, other factors that are associated with it will also change too. And they change in conjunction with each other, which means that if I want to make healthier choices, put quotes around the healthier, I'm going to want to make a change in the easiest factor to change that's going to provide the encouragement to make the change. That change is going to stimulate, is going to cause me to want to change other factors within the overall umbrella of lifestyle factors that are on the continuum of the fitness and fatness issues as it relates to my lifestyle choices within all those cogwheels that are spinning that's going to improve my overall health. Because that's the whole idea here. Regardless of how we go about approaching the, the issue, the overall idea here is to improve overall health. And the way we should improve overall health is by making behavioral selections that puts me further on the continuum towards fitness and further away from fatness. By doing that, I'm able to reduce the risk for diseases. And by reducing the risk for diseases, I'm able to have a better health status. If I have this label of pre-diabetes, the label of pre-diabetes is not a label that is meant for me to be put onto a drug treatment regimen. It's not a label that's meant to blame me for doing something or not doing something. It's a label that is indicating that I am on the continuum of fitness and fatness that is pushing me towards the fatness end of that continuum. And within that continuum of fitness and fatness, I know that I can change. I can waver from one extreme to another extreme. Moving, If I can move myself towards the fitness end of that continuum, my health status is going to improve. And by improving my health status, I'm able to reduce the chronic inflammation. By reducing the chronic inflammation, I'm able to change my hormone signals. By changing my hormone signals, I'm able to reduce my chronic inflammation, and I'm able to be healthier in general. And so it's not about this indication of needing weight loss, even though that's how everybody approaches it. It's not this indication about needing to eliminate sugars from the diet, even though that's how we want to talk about it. What it's about is it's about changing the choices within the lifestyle that allow us to get all of the cogs to spin in unison with each other so that the engine that is my body is able to run more efficiently. If you talk to geneticists, they'll say, oh, it's about the genes. If you talk to the endocrinologist, they'll say, oh, it's all about the endocrines. If you talk about talk to us about the nutritionist, it's all about your, your nutrition. If you talk to the personal trainer, it's all about your exercise. But it's more than just that. It's the culmination of everything put together. But the thing that we have to look at as we close out this episode is that when we make these choices, and this is where the whole idea of having the support comes in, the choices have to come from the individual. We cannot coerce the person into choosing. You cannot be coerced into choosing. The 
biggest problem with the choices in terms of diet and exercise, in terms of lifestyle changes, in terms of support, is the fact that a lot of the healthcare providers are providing ideas from their own personal internalized bias. One of the issues that comes into play here as it relates to the pre-diabetic condition is that we tend to relate the pre-diabetic condition to body morphology. Yes, I talked about fitness and fatness. Yes, I talked about body fat and fat-free mass, but it's not about how the individual looks. It's about how those factors come into play in terms of the balancing of, of health status and how the tissues of the body are going to allow for normal function or inflammation function. Stress management comes into play. When we start looking at this, and it's not mentioned within the, the one page on in the JAMA as, that's meant for patient information, and it's not referenced in many of the other publications that I've been reading from JAMA, from the Journal of Medical, American Medical Association, related to how we go about treating the issue. The whole idea that they present is treating the obesity as treating a fatness issue. And it's not about treating the fatness issue. It's about making sure that we address the holistic person, involve the person within the treatment, involve the person in terms of the choices that are available, making sure that they get the support that is necessary for the choices that they're making. The feedback when the choices are not as appropriate as other choices, not based off the personal bias, but based off of what does the evidence that we have within the literature show. And what the evidence shows is that when we start looking at treatments and treatments for individuals who are pre-diabetic that we're trying to keep from swinging towards the disease side, is that exercise is more important than diet in terms of changing body mass and improving of hormonal signals. Resistance exercise, weight training, is more beneficial than endurance training, and the combination of the two is more beneficial than either one by itself. And that when we start looking at diet, it's about nutrient balance, not calorie balance. When we start looking at meal size and meal timing, it's about what fits the person's lifestyle, not what we want to fit into the lifestyle. Well, thanks for listening. Hopefully got a little bit out of the two parts of the discussion here as we went through the points raised in the Journal of the American Medical Association's patient information flyer on prediabetes. Please make sure that you're giving us those likes and clicking that subscribe button. Make sure you're on the alert to get updates for when we're publishing out new stuff. Follow us on all of the publication flat platforms here on the podcast, as well as on YouTube, on Substack, with small video publications being put out on Instagram.
links are found within the description for this podcast, as well as links to the aforementioned podcasts that have already been released.